death in a way when you read this doesn't really matter. Yeah, Wallace Stevens is dead, and yes, so will we be one day, but... But we live in the evening air. Right. And somehow, for some mysterious reason, being there together is enough. Hi, everyone. In today's recording, you'll hear a discussion between me and my wife, Clara Akebrand, about the poetry of Wallace Stevens. Plus, at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just-for-fun writing prompt that will hopefully help you to hear the voice of your muse a little more clearly. We'll begin with a quote about writing. This one is by Wallace Stevens. He once wrote, Style is not something applied. It is something that permeates. It is of the nature of that in which it is found whether the poem, the manner of a god, the bearing of a man, it is not a dress. Sometimes as writers we can be obsessed with finding quote-unquote our original voice or making sure that we have a distinctive style, and this can lead us to believe that it's our job to go in search of a style or to create a style or to adopt a style to make that style distinctive and noticeable. I think what Stephen says here though is absolutely correct Your style will happen automatically. It's in your bones, and it comes out of your bones. And the more you write, the more your writing will be defined by that style. So instead of trying on different styles like as if they were clothes, remember he says it is not a dress, just simply write a lot and be yourself and watch what happens. If you let this process unfold automatically and organically, the end result will be automatically the creation of a style that is inherently your own, something that permeates, something that nobody else could quite replicate. Although he was influenced by many famous predecessor poets, Wallace Stevens is certainly a great example of a poet who knew how to be himself on the page and let that inner style permeate everything he wrote. And for more about how he did this and why it makes his poetry so wonderful to read, let's go into that chat with Claire. So, Claire and I are back to talk about the poetry of Wallace Stevens. By Claire, I mean Claire Akebrand, author of a book of poems (laughs) called What Was Left of the Stars, and a novel called The Field is White. Both extremely beautiful, both available for purchase on Amazon. Highly recommended. Great Christmas gifts, great Labor Day gifts, great Thanksgiving gifts. But not good Easter gifts. Horrible, horrible Easter gifts. (laughs) We both really love the poetry of Wallace Stevens, but we both kind of agree that you you probably love him more than me. I mean, I love him kind of unabashedly and without reservation, but I don't think he's entered into my soul in the same way that he's entered into yours. Is that true? That is true. So tell us, tell the good people, describe the experience of falling in love with the poetry of Wallace Stevens. What was it that first your eyes met across a crowded room? <laughs> I had come across his poems, of course, um, when I was studying English or doing my bachelor's, but I didn't really have a um, I didn't really have a connection with him yet. I enjoyed some of it, but then a few years later, my dad gave me a very beautiful copy of his collected poetry and prose, and I don't know what was different. Maybe I had been away from college long enough to not read for papers anymore. Yeah. And I just read for pleasure. And I I just fell in love with him, his poetry, so deeply. And I enjoyed it so much. I read it for like a whole year. That was like 
the only poetry I read for an entire year. I Every day, Michael would take the kids out in the afternoon, because they were wild at that time, and needed outings every day, and I would just spend the afternoon with Wallace Stevens. I'd read the poems out loud, and I enjoyed it so much. Every single time I read a poem, like, there are poems in a collection that are obviously not as good as his best ones, but there was always something, some chunk of gold that I that just baffled me. So what you're saying is I'm the best husband in the world. That's what I'm yes, taking away that, from this. that is what it boils down to. <laughs> Say more about the difference between reading for pleasure and reading for writing a paper. Do you have, like, what, what happens in your mind that's different? Why is one kind of like instant death? What is the difference between those two? And what would you recommend to a person who wants to fall in love with poetry? I think a lot of people go into poetry with hesitation or with... Or even if they like it, they might feel like they, um, they're they going into some kind of math problem that they need to solve, that there's something that needs to be figured out, or there's something about which a smart thing can be said. <laughs> yeah, that the purpose of the poem is to give them an opportunity to show off right. how good they are at decoding secret messages. Right. And I mean, I, I can relate to that desire. I remember, you know, if I had to read some poems for a class, and I, of course, wanted to show up knowing, you know, having some good things to say about it. And there's not really anything wrong with that. But obviously, if that's your only goal, you're missing out on so much, as I realized. I mean, that wasn't my only goal. But I realized so many years later, after having graduated, and just reading for pleasure, I had this kind of epiphany. I was like, oh my gosh, I am reading this just for myself. I'm not reading it for a teacher. I'm not reading it for paper or some assignment. And yeah, it, I was open to it in a, a much different way. I'm trying to think about what the difference in mindset is between reading for yourself and reading for, you know, an assignment or a class. I think you're more strangely you're more receptive you're not blinded anymore by your need to mm. you go for into a poem purpose yeah if you go into a poem thinking well i have to write a paper about this so what am i going to say versus encountering the poem with no agenda no preconceptions no ulterior motives mm -hmm. and letting the poem just offer whatever gifts being willing to be surprised by whatever gifts the poem wants to offer you right and sometimes maybe it's even as simple as if you're trying to understand it so, you're, you're trying so hard to understand it, you lose the ability to focus. <laughs> do you know what I mean? No, what do you mean? Say, uh, that, say more. Well, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I have ADD. <laughs> when I'm supposed to pay attention to something, I pay worse attention to oh, it. right, yeah. Because I'm trying so hard to pay attention. Well, and also I, I think it's just kind of a universal experience if if you feel obligated or forced to read something, you're not going to, if the motivations to read it are external, it's not going to land as deeply in your soul as it would if the motivations were internal, if you were reading it yes. just because you wanted to read it. Yes. Okay, so, um, but what was it specifically about his style or his subject matter or his forms or why, why him? What was it about his work that was unlike other people's? His poetry is so intensely and sometimes unbearably celebratory. He loves the world so much. Yeah. 
and nature. He's, I mean, there's um, there's that poem. I don't know how to pronounce the title. Gubbinal. Is that how you say it? Yeah, I don't know. That's how I've been saying it. Gubbinal. Yeah. Should I read it? Read it if you want. Okay. This is a poem I've actually read to my kids before, too, and they really <laughs> love it. I'm curious to know where you're going with this, because this is not a celebratory poem. It is. Let's find out. <laughs> Gubbinal. That strange flower, the sun, is just what you say. Have it your way. The world is ugly, and the people are sad. That tuft of jungle feathers, that animal eye, is just what you say. That savage of fire, that seed, have it your way. The world is ugly, and the people are sad. I thought you said he loved the world. <laughs> he does. This is a poem directed at people who don't. Mm. Who don't celebrate it. He's like, have it your way. Sure. Right. There is no such thing as magic. There's no such thing as a tuft of jungle feathers. I love the details that he chooses here. That animal eye. I mean. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Yes. There's so many animal eyes in his poems. And feathers and birds and all these exotic, wonderful images and Florida keeps showing up. It's a, it's exactly what we say to our kids when we do something nice for them or take them somewhere or give them some kind of treat and they're dissatisfied with it and they throw some kind of fit. And what do we say to them? We say, Fine. yeah, you're right. This is the worst day ever. You're right. Life does suck. Okay. Yeah. Leave now. <laughs> well, no, but I love this so much because he's like, have it your way. And it feels like he's saying, uh, and I'll just uh, keep it to myself. I'll have it all to myself then. Mm. You go on hating it, and I, there's just more for me. And also, I mean, this touches on one of the themes that keeps coming up again and again in his poems, which is the world. It sounds kind of trite, and I hate to reduce it to this kind of truism, but the world, if you read the poetry of Wallace Stevens, the impression that you get is the world is what you make it to be. The world is as you choose to create it. Right. I mean, Florida doesn't look like the way Wallace Stevens describes it, I'm sure. Well, I don't know. Why don't we read? <laughs> it does in my imagination. I've never been there, but... I know. I. It's funny. I actually only know Florida through him. <laughs> What's that wonderful poem? Oh, I, I, I dog-eared it. Should we read this? Yes. This is called Nomad Exquisite, and yeah, it's like, well, for me, probably the, ster the prototypical Florida poem, and mm -hmm. yeah, I'll just read it. As the immense dew of Florida brings forth the big finned palm and green vine angering for life, as the immense dew of Florida brings forth him and him from the beholder, beholding all these green sides and gold sides of green sides and blessed mornings, meet for the eye of the young alligator and lightning colors, so in me come flinging forms, flames, and the flakes of flames. Now, this is a. I love what you say about how I know what you mean when you say that interpretations can kind of kill the pleasure that we get when we read a poem. Yeah, limited. And yet, some ways. that's not to say that all poems are instantly clear. When I read a poem mm -hmm. like this, I'm quite befuddled. Yeah. There are certain sentences or phrases that I wouldn't claim to understand. So how do you square the circle? Can you reconcile this for me? Tell people how it's possible to enjoy a poem without necessarily being able to paraphrase or explain every sentence? Do, do you, Or do you feel like you could explain every sentence of this no, poem? No, no, not at all. My dad actually is a ginormous fan of Wallace Stevens too, more than me possibly. And he will often send me a poem of his, of Stevens, and be like, any ideas? <laughs> <laughs> but why is that? Why is that good? I mean, why is that? Why are we laughing? Why is that? 
a praiseworthy yeah. way of enjoying poetry. I mean, I totally know what you mean, but I mean, I've I've heard a lot of people say, "Oh, I don't like Wallstein; it's just nonsense or something." And I think they're actually right to some degree. A lot of it is nonsense. Mm. I, I don't think this particular poem now, but. Um, I read once um, that Wallace Stevens and he said he wanted people to have play with his poems and have fun in them like children playing in snow. Mm. And I loved reading that because that's exactly how I feel in his poems. I feel like he is he's playing with language and he's not just he's not just saying stuff. I mean, I, I think in, in many ways he's like a painter, maybe even an abstract painter. Mm. He paints what feels true mm -hmm. and what evokes certain emotions. So it's not nonsense. All these beholding all these green sides and gold sides of green oh, sides. That's that so does gorgeous. make sense. That's not yeah. nonsense, but it does have the 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 ring of a kind of nursery rhyme. Mm -hmm. Or a kind of thing that a kid would say. I know. It's kind of half half I, babbling. I know. I love that you said that about the kid because um it it does seem to be the kind of poem where he is delighted to such a degree that where he's almost almost a child again, viewing yeah. the world for the first time as a child, and he can't think of poetic words. <laughs> he can't think of any big words. He's like cold sides, green sides. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. I love this meat for the eye of the young alligator, oh, I know. and lightning colors. So in me come flinging forms, flames, and the flakes of flames. He's playing with language. He loves the sound of language. He loves the taste of language. He loves putting language in his mouth and moving it around mm. and feeling the lushness and the textures of words. Yeah. So there's something immensely physical and sensory and mm -hmm. sensual about reading Wallace Stevens, especially the early Wallace Stevens. And I think yeah. the, the painter analogy is great, especially painters who really um, lay the paint on thickly, mm -hmm. like a Van Gogh or something, just coat after coat. Mm. Texture, texture, texture. Yeah. He loves the gaudiness. There's, a, there's something about Wall Stevens' poem after poem celebrating the gaudiness and lushness of language. Yeah, and textures as in images, rich images and sounds, the music of it, the, yeah. the content. I mean, these are not contentless. When he's playing with language, there's, I mean, most of the time there's there's a lot of wisdom in his poetry too. But uh, well, this this is a good point. Maybe to step a elusive wisdom. <laughs> I actually, in thinking about this conversation that we were going to have, I was I, I realized yet again that Wall Stevens is an incredibly difficult poet to talk about. It's it's he's much harder to talk about than, for example, Walt Whitman or Emily Dickinson or Robert Frost. Maybe the only American poets who are as good or better than him. I mean, he's in that same pantheon. He presents much more, he presents many more difficulties when we come to talk about him than those other poets do. Those other poets all have quite a distinct style and persona and way of writing a poem. Wallace Stevens is much harder to pin down. He doesn't have only one way of writing a poem. Mm -hmm. He can be lush and gaudy. He can be extremely minimal mm -hmm. and spare. Mm -hmm. uh, his poems can be playful and I don't want to say nonsensical, but all of the pleasures can lie on the surface. But then in other poems, the, he can have, as you say, very intensely thought out theoretical arguments that he's oh, putting wow. forth. Mm -hmm. So he's a poet of real variety and 
experimentation, and um, he's much more protean than those other American poets that I that I mentioned. And just for example, one of my favorite poems by him, Sunday Morning. I mean, it's probably in my top ten poems ever. You say. I want to read the last stanza of that poem as a contrast to Nomadic Exquisite because this poem about Florida that we read is, what is this poem about? It's just about how beautiful Florida is. Yeah. You know, that's it. Yeah. And he just wants to paint a painting of Florida and how shiny and exotic and strange and flame-like it is. That's mm-hmm. it. There's, there's no deeply philosophical work being done in this poem, right? Right. But there are other poems in which they're, I won't say deeply philosophical, but there are other poems that are much more cerebral. And Sunday Morning, I think, is definitely one of them. He's kind of putting forth a philosophy of secular religion in this poem. I hope that doesn't turn anyone off because it's extremely beautiful. I want to read the last stanza because it relates directly to what you say about him loving the world so much. To provide a little bit of context, this poem is about a woman who stays home from church one week and thinks about the world and why it is divine and why it should be celebrated and exactly where worship should or can happen. Is worship something that should or can only happen at church or can it happen anywhere? And this is the last stanza of this poem. She hears upon that water without sound a voice that cries, the tomb in Palestine is not the porch of spirits lingering. It is the grave of Jesus where he lay. We live in an old chaos of the sun, or old dependency of day and night, or island solitude, unsponsored, free of that wide water, inescapable. Deer walk upon our mountains, and the quail whistle about us their spontaneous cries. Sweet berries ripen in the wilderness, and in the isolation of the sky, at evening, Casual flocks of pigeons make ambiguous undulations as they sink downward to darkness on extended wings. I think this is the ultimate. This really is the apotheosis of poetry that celebrates the world Mm. in the 20th century, I think. Mm. I, I hate paraphrasing poetry because everything you need to know is in the rhythms and the beauty of the images and the rhymes and the forms, but essentially the argument is the tomb where Jesus rose from the dead is simply that. It's a tomb. The real location of divinity is all around us. Dear, like, Listen to how stunned he is by the most simple facts. Deer walk upon our mountains. Mm-hmm. And the quail whistle about us their spontaneous cries. I mean, he can hardly believe it. I think about Utah every time, you know, sometimes I wake up and walk to work early in the morning and there's deer, you know, running around the road. And And quail. And quail. (laughs) Exactly right. And berries, you know, sweet berries ripen in the wilderness. Isn't this heaven? You know, what? why why do we need promises of something better than this? Mm. It couldn't get better than this. There's deer in our mountains. Right. And in pining for this more perfect afterlife, you're forgetting about. That's right. You're... You're, you're losing the paradise that is in front of your eyes. Mm-hmm. So he absolutely loves the world. You say that was one of the first things that you fell in love with, his love of the world. Oh, yeah. There's such a, <clears throat> I mean, it's so obvious how much um, he reveres nature and is inspired by it. These ambiguous undulations of the pigeons remind me of um, his poems. How so? Well, ambiguous. Um, oh, that's really good. 
Right. Um, it is and good. <laughs> undulations. I mean, undulations is good too because I'm insistent that 60, 70, 80% of the pleasure of most poetry, not just Wallace Stevens, is rhythmic, by which mm. I mean musical. So yeah. you can listen to a piece of music and notice that you have this, not that it's ever happened to me, I'm above such things, instant desire to start dancing, you know? Or a baby can hear a song and be instantly captivated. Our son Isaac would cry, you know, he was like one and a half, out of what, bliss, sadness, when we would play for him certain songs? Mm-hmm. Like John Lennon, imagine? Even before then, like when he was a baby. Pre-verbal kid, you know, he's not like moved by the lyrics or the meaning. or It's all rhythmic. So there's something about the sound waves moving through air, ringing your body like a bell uh, that is extremely moving and literally moving. They move you. Mm-hmm. physically so his poems if you if you turn off your brain while you read his poems and read his poems out loud you'll inst- your body will respond to the undulations mm-hmm. of the sentences mm-hmm. yeah which are granted sometimes ambiguous as you say ambiguous but beautiful and enjoying the act of moving even yeah. if it's moving down toward darkness yeah. i mean it can't be an accident that the poem ends with uh, the darkness you mean to celebrate, now I feel like a professor, you know, doing interpretations, but you just simply mean like there's something about not knowing or the mystery or darkness. Not everything has to be explained or illuminated. And darkness, mystery, ignorance, the unknown is a realm of importance and meaning and pleasure. Is this what you mean? Right. And even us, as we as we live our lives, we know that we are headed downward to darkness. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> no, keep talking. We all know we're going to die. Right. I mean, we uh, have different beliefs about what it might happen after, but we know that at least death is going to happen. But ambiguous undulations, beautiful movement, and, well, beauty is possible as right. it's happening. You can move beautifully down. To the darkness. <laughs> Plus, it's not the last phrase of the poem. The last phrase of the poem is on extended wings. Exactly. You don't just slump down towards it. You extend your wings. It's very much um, Hopkins-esque, you know? Mm-hmm. And with ah, bright wings, there's something extremely celebratory. Yeah. Yeah, or I thought of um, I thought of that other poem. Keats. To his coy mistress, though we cannot make the sun mm. san- stand still, we will make him run. Yeah. Is that how it goes? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I can't help but hear Keats in this poem. Oh, yeah. Sweet berries ripen in the wilderness, you know, to autumn or, you know, certain stanzas of the nightingale poem. Deer walk upon our mountains and the quail whistle about us, their spontaneous cries. And the nightingale that disappears in another right. valley. Exactly. Ambiguous undulations, as they mm-hmm. sing. Anyway, I, I just say that to, because I, I love being able to trace the genealogy of poets. You know, I aspire to write a kind of beautiful poetry like this and i love being able to see oh they learned from poets of the past you know mm-hmm. stevens is obviously trying to sound like keats i think here is a good lesson i think for all of us that how do we learn to write we learn by reading writers we love you say he loves the world but he also loves the imagination as much if not more doesn't he do you have anything to say about that he loves the power of thought and the imagination uh-huh. and seems like if you read him that the cumulative argument of his poems, I shouldn't have said that, I hate saying that, the cumulative insistence of his poems is that the imagination is divine. Mm-hmm. 
Well, there's that one poem, Disillusionment at 10 o'clock, which is one of my favorite of his poems, actually. Okay, so do you want to read it and then say why? Yes. This goes uh, along with what you were saying about um, he loves the world as much as he loves the imagination. Anyway, so it's called Disillusionment of 10 o'clock. The houses are haunted by white nightgowns. None are green or purple with green rings or green with yellow rings, or yellow with blue rings. None of them are strange, with socks of lace and beaded censures. People are not going to dream of baboons and periwinkles. Only here and there an old sailor, drunk and asleep in his boots, catches tigers in red weather. So, don't interpret this poem for us, but enjoy it out loud for us. (laughs) I think he, I mean... He sees this world that's black and white of some people and a world that's in color for other people, such as himself. Mm. He's like that old sailor, drunk and asleep in his boots. I love this. The houses are haunted by white nightgowns. It, these people who are, not, who are not using their imaginations or who are living their lives in a sort of black and white existence um yeah they're they're like ghosts they're haunting their own homes Mm. they're not alive in their own homes and i love that the images again these are exotic images when he talks of nature it's so often exotic he says people are not going to dream of baboons that's like (laughs) extremely surprising uh image to come up Though not that surprising, because he already prepared us with these purple and green rings, you know? Oh, yeah. And I I just love the phrase red weather. Just who says red weather? A couple of really amazing things that you said that we should elaborate on, because, yeah, I think you're right that he, it is a kind of announcement of what the artist should be capable of. The artist should should be capable of being asleep in his or her boots, alone in a room, and dreaming the most amazing, exotic, beautiful, fantastic, surreal, outlandish thoughts, mm-hmm. catching tigers in red weather. Mm-hmm. You know, so the power of the mind is absolute, mm-hmm. and the role of the artist is to tap into the power of that mind. Yeah. But you also highlight how surprising some of these phrases are. To dream of baboons does seem to come out of nowhere. I love what you say about it being prepared by the colors, but it's still very surprising. Oh, yeah. And red weather is extremely surprising. So, you know, if you're making a list of what you can learn about being a great poet by Wallace Stevens, absolutely near the top of that list should be you must constantly, constantly be surprising your readers, Mm -hmm. constantly defying their expectations. On the level of the phrase, I think one of the most helpful piece of writing advice I ever got was, and I don't know who to attribute this to, you know, passed down through the grapevine, I suppose, but that you should aspire to at least two surprises per line when you write a poem. Yeah. And there's many different ways to surprise in a poem, and many different things can count as a surprise. They don't have to be jungle animals. No, they don't have to be jungle (laughs) animals suddenly jumping out at you. But Wallace Stevens is the total master of surprising with images or with phrasings or with word pairs that shouldn't go together but do, Mm -hmm. you know, or with rep. He's even so good at surprising with repetitions, gold sides of green sides, gold sides and green Mm -hmm. sides and gold sides of green sides. So even a slight twist on a repeated phrase can suddenly be stunning and completely unexpected. So you must defy your reader's expectations. Right. That's not to say that you just start spouting utter nonsense because utter nonsense isn't surprising. It's predictably nonsensical, you know? Mm -hmm. There's a few other lines and a few other poems that, that really celebrate his love of the imagination. In this poem, 
tea at the Palaz of Hoon. That's the title of the poem. His titles are so amazing. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. This poem is called Tea at the Palaz of Hoon. I won't read all of it, but he there are some lines that say, Out of my mind the golden ointment reigned, and my ears made the blowing hymns they heard. I was myself the compass of the sea. I was the world in which I walked, and what I saw or heard or felt came not but from myself. The human, the mind, it, as you say, if you want to think that the world is ugly and the people are sad, then it is. Yeah. If you, you get want, to paint your own world. Or if you want to see tigers everywhere and gold sides of green sides, then that is what the world will be. Mm-hmm. This is from a poem called um, Bantam in Pine Woods. Oh, I love that. Bantams is a type of rooster. <clears throat> and this is what he thinks they would say. <clears throat> Chieftain, if you can, of Azcan in caftan of tan with henna hackles, halt. Damned universal cock, as if the sun was blackamoor to bear your blazing tail. Fat, 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 fat. I am the personal. Your world is you. I am my world. You ten-foot poet among inchlings. Fat, be gone. An inchling bristles in these pines, bristles and points their Appalachian tangs, and fears not portly Askan, nor his who's. <laughs> so it's almost Dr. Seuss-esque in its level of verbal play. And I really think he's quite close to the sound of a rooster talking, you know? <laughs> so he wants to get as many automatopoeias into these sentences as he can. But I love this. Your world is you. I am my world. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to see the world that way? I'll see it my way, right? Yeah. He has this later poem, this very long poem called Notes Toward a Supreme Fiction. I really love it, but it's, it's very difficult to read. I just want to highlight the section titles of this poem and ask you, Claire, what you think about these as a poet. Notes Toward a Supreme Fiction is this kind of giant theoretical long poem in which he, I think, I couldn't quite explain to you every single line or stanza of this poem, um, puts forth an argument of what poetry should do and be. And it's divided into three sections. And the subtitle, the title of the first section is, It Must Be Abstract. Mm -hmm. Why must a poem or a supreme fiction, I think by this phrase, he means any great piece of literature. Why must it be abstract? Often in creative writing classes, we're told, Concrete images, concrete images, sensory images, right? Mm-hmm. And even some of his contemporaries like Pound and, Whit- and uh, Williams are saying no ideas but things. Mm-hmm. Why is he seeming to say the opposite? Well, he is obviously not abstract all the time. Yeah, tigers and stuff. Right. So even in, in his abstract poems, he has very concrete images. Of course, all of these add up to us something very abstract and often indecipherable. Mm. Um, so I think, I think based on his poetry too, what he means by it must be abstract is that you have to make it mysterious. You have to leave right. something for the reader to sink into, to not uh, ever find a solution to. You know what I mean? Just- I totally do. Even in the first section of this sentence, he says, "Begin Ephib." Ephib is just I think this fancy word for it, like um, apprentice. Beginner, begin by perceiving the idea of this invention, this invented world, the inconceivable idea of the sun. So he wants to announce right at the very beginning that reality, the world, things are inconceivable, fundamentally inconceivable. So deer walking on the mountains is already abstract. Yeah. And later on, he says a name for something that could never be named. Mm. Yeah. He says in this first section, you must become an ignorant man again and see the sun again with an ignorant eye and see it clearly in the idea of it. Look at the world as if you've never seen it before and it will seem 
unknown and weird and mysterious to you. It will seem deeply mysterious to you. Mm -hmm. And it's the job of poetry to recapture that mystery. Yes. And to not be insisting on one-for-one ratios between things and ideas, words and things, ideas and things. Mm -hmm. But to have this general general, um, tone of, isn't this weird? (laughs) Isn't this weird? Yeah. The title of the next section is It Must Change, a great work of literature. Maybe poetry specifically must change. Any thoughts about that? I think it must undulate, like mm. like those pigeons in his Sunday morning poem. It has to have um, rhythms, and it has to break those rhythms, and it has to be a moving, living thing. In this section, he, I think, corroborates that exact what it, exactly what you just said. He says, Music falls on the silence like a sense, a passion that we feel, not understand. Mm-hmm. Right? So... Poetry is something that we feel without having to understand it. Morning and afternoon are clasped together, and north and south are are an intrinsic couple, and sun and rain a plural, like two lovers that walk away as one in the greenest body. It is alive. It is an organism. It's like a relationship Mm -hmm. or an astronomical body, and it will therefore change depending on when in your life you're reading it, Mm -hmm. how many times you've read it. Mm -hmm. It's never going to be the same poem. Right. I hate to say that a masterpiece, I don't like claiming that there are universal ingredients or characteristics of a masterpiece, but if there are, surely that's one of them, that each time you read it, it seems new. Yeah. It seems different. It seems like you didn't read all of it, or there's things in it that you never saw before. So it's always changing. Yeah, I like that. How do you write such things, Claire? I'll tell you exactly how. <laughs> Everyone, get your pens out. It has to be abstract. It has to have mystery to it. You, It can't be black and white. There has to be, you have to allow yourself to write things you don't fully understand, but you feel are true. Yeah, Frost, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. Yeah. So don't be too insistent or willful. Mm-hmm. And don't worry if don't worry about well, if a reader is going to understand if it's maybe too personal, because if you're really true to these feelings that uh, that come up as you're writing something, then no matter how abstract they are, somebody else who is a human is going to be able to understand those on mm-hmm. some level. The third section of this poem is titled "It Must Give Pleasure," mm-hmm. which is my favorite. It's so obvious. It's so obvious, but people forget. Yes, people forget. (laughs) Why do you think people forget that poems must give pleasure? People are so focused on writing something political with a very specific message. Yeah. That they're forgetting that the joy and the truly life-changing thing about literature is that it gives pleasure and is life-affirming in that way. The The most morally profound poems are poems who only aspire to give pleasure. Yeah. I love how he begins this section, it must give pleasure, to sing jubilas at exact accustomed times, to be crested and wear the mane of a multitude and so as part, to exult with its great throat, to speak of joy and to sing it, Mm. born on the shoulders of joyous men, to feel the heart that is the common, the bravest fundament. Mm. It's so beautiful. Yeah. So, um, so much more we could say about him. He's a he's an inexhaustible. I mean, we could do like a, a ten recording long series on Wallace Stevens. Mm. He, he is a poet of immense change and immense pleasure and immense mystery. I want to end by reading maybe my favorite again. I would hate to say this is my favorite because it 
it would imply that the other ones aren't as good. He has poems that are probably better than this. I just love this one so much. It's called Final Soliloquy of the Interior Paramour. <laughs> Actually, before I read this, we should just like, shouldn't we say for two seconds something about his titles? Oh my gosh. And how much you can learn about how to write poetry? Oh my gosh. Just based on titles? Just reading through the index of the titles is poetry. You know for I mean? example, Polo Ponies Practicing, Anecdote of the Prince of Peacocks. The florist wears knee breeches. Oh my gosh. Local objects. <laughs> Local objects, yeah, and then you can get super plain. Nuns painting water lilies. This is one of my oh, favorites. That's good. The desire to make love in a pagoda. <laughs> Mountains covered with cats. Oh my gosh. I mean, the, if you just read his titles, like Claire says, you can learn so much about poetry. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. Concrete images, concrete images, concrete images. Mystery, mystery, mystery. Mm hmm. What else do you need to know about how to write a poem? Okay, so this poem is called Final Soliloquy of the Interior Paramour. It's a, it's a mouthful of a, of a title. If you look at it, I mean, it's not actually that mysterious. This is a soliloquy of someone who lives inside of you, you know. A paramour is, you know, a romantic partner. I think the implication here is that this is his muse, his inner muse, right, who has visited him for many years now. He's written this poem. He writes this poem at the end of his life, and he hears her talking to him. So this is the muse speaking to Wallace Stevens. And I think it's such a beautiful, beautiful poem. Light the first light of evening, as in a room in which we rest and, for small reason, think the world imagined is the ultimate good. This is, therefore, the intensest rendezvous. It is in that thought that we collect ourselves out of all the indifferences into one thing, within a single thing, a single shawl wrapped tightly round us, since we are poor, a warmth, a light, a power, the miraculous influence. Here, now, we forget each other and ourselves. We feel the obscurity of an order, a whole, a knowledge, that which arranged the rendezvous with its vital boundary in the mind. We say God and the imagination are one. How high that highest candle lights the dark. Out of this same light, out of the central mind, we make a dwelling in the evening air, in which being there together is enough. I just remembered that that last stanza is like one of my favorite stanzas of all. <laughs> what do you like about it so much? Well, it's... It's that celebratory tone again. Celebratory doesn't even begin to describe his tone. I think it's it's some type of ecstasy, right? Yeah. Being there together is enough. Or we we make a dwelling in the evening. I think so so often in his poems he becomes one with his surroundings. Mm -hmm. Kind of meld into each other. Just the idea of making a dwelling in the evening air is something I would have never come up with. That I'm really jealous of. So surprising. It uh, is. Just as a phrase, just as a, a string of words and as an image. And, and just being there with your imagination in the evening air. Yeah. That being there together, that moment is enough. Yeah. That's so gorgeous. I know. You just need an evening and your imagination. <laughs> yeah. It's so great. That is so beautiful. 
And I always say this, but that's because we always read amazing literature when we talk about these, you know. When, life is short. Don't read bad stuff. <laughs> but it's so life-affirming, right? Because this isn't like a Florida. It's life-affirming. One of the reasons I think it's life-affirming is because this isn't like, oh, you need exoticism. You need fanciness. You need frills. It's a, a very plain room, candles, you're alone, you have one shawl. That's it. There's a rendezvous, you in the mind, you in your imagination, or you in a poem. Like I think when he says things like, we make a dwelling in the evening air, or within a single thing, a single shawl wrapped tightly around us, a warmth, a light, a power, mm -hmm. the miraculous influence, that's poetry. Mm. Poetry is a warmth, a light, a power, a miraculous influence that, like a shawl, we wrap around us. Since we are poor, that's what he says. Yeah. It's hard to be a human. We mm. are weak and vulnerable and mortal. And we have these things made out of words that we can wrap around us. We have these dwellings that are called poems. They're made out of air. But inside of them, we have light and warmth. And when you are in a poem, when you are in these dwellings, with the poet, with the poem, with yourself. With your imagination. There's nothing. That is a kind of sacred thing. I mean, here we are so reading a poem true. written decades ago by a man who's dead, feeling like death has in some way been transcended. Because Wallace Stevens is here with us, you know, and that's enough. It's so extremely powerful. He's, I mean, there's no, you, I mean, he's basically saying you can be completely alone in the world. You have no family, no friends. You can be in the plainest place, in a worse place. But if you have your imagination and I think interchangeable with poetry or any art. Yeah. You have a light and you have a power and you have a warmth. Yeah. And that's enough. The, it reminds me of this documentary I watched once about Ing, uh, Ingmar Bergman, where he says that in his life, and he had a, he had a hard life. He dealt with a lot of, uh, among other things, depression and anxiety. He said that the most constant thing in his life that he was the most grateful for was his imagination, because it was inexhaustible. It never left him. Mm. He was never alone. Mm -hmm. And that makes so much sense to me. And you've also said this in past recordings too, but there's something about poetry that continuously teaches us to treat the present moment as sacred. Mm -hmm. Just being here together is enough. Like you and I here in this office is something, there's something sacred about this. Wherever you are listening to this, that's enough. You don't need something better than that. You know, there's there's divinity. I, I, it's hard to talk about this without sounding trite and corny, but yeah. if the world is what you make it, then you can make wherever you are right now divine. You know what I mean? Something miraculous, like he says in that poem, something miraculous. Mm. So we read poetry to be constantly reminded of this because we constantly forget that this is true. Yeah. It gives you back the world. It makes you less alone. Yeah. And not just less alone, it makes you uh, <laughs> make you feel triumphant. <laughs> it sounds cheesy, but... But that's true. I mean, yeah, death in a way, when you read this, doesn't really matter. Yeah, Wallace Stevens is dead, and yes, so will we be one day, but... But we live in the evening air. 
Right. And somehow, for some mysterious reason, being there together is enough. And being there can happen across time and space, mm -hmm. thanks to poems. Yeah. Today's writing prompt is based on that last poem I read in that conversation with Claire, Final Soliloquy of the Interior Paramour. And it's a kind of silly little thing that I just simply hope will help you learn to think differently about where poetry comes from and why you write poetry and what you want your poetry to be like. In that poem by Wallace Stevens, he imagines what the muse would tell him for the last time as a kind of farewell. So without putting pressure on yourself to write a poem that good or even to write a poem, I want you to just spend one or two minutes reflecting about what inspires you to write. You could call it the muse, what your motives for writing are, what you want your poetry to do and to be, and try to imagine a person speaking these things to you. Call that person the muse. And what does what is this person telling you about your art? What does this person, imagine a person who loves you, like this muse could be kind of like a parental figure, right? Someone who loves you and cares for you and wants the best for you, but also someone who demands a lot out of you and who has high standards for you. What are they telling you about poems? What do they want your poems to be? What do they expect your poems to do? And again, don't feel pressured to write a poem. Don't even feel pressured to write poetry-like things. This exercise could be nothing more than a kind of exercise in mental clarity or an exercise in establishing for yourself what your motivations for writing are or in getting a clearer idea of what you want your poetry to achieve or look like on the page. But just simply in a free write, start writing down in the voice of this person what they hope for you as a poet, why they hope that you'll write poems. Why would a person that you love hope that you would keep writing poems? What is it that your poems give this person? What do they hope to find in your poems? Why do they love your poems so much? Like I said, this might not turn into a poem at all, but it might be a helpful corrective in your attitude or in your approach to poetry, why you want to write poetry at all. At the very least, hopefully it helps reestablish your writing practice on a set of priorities that are clearer, more ambitious, and more true to what you want to be as a writer. So we'll end this recording with a poem, a poem not by Wallace Stevens, but one which I'm sure was inspired by him, and in fact, I think owes a great debt to Final Soliloquy of the Interior Paramour. So this is a poem called Just Walking Around by John Ashbery. And you'll hear in the very last line of this poem, kind of Ashbery's version of the last line of that Wallace Stevens poem. This is called Just Walking Around. What name do I have for you? Certainly there is no name for you in the sense that the stars have names that somehow fit them. Just walking around, an object of curiosity to some, but you are too preoccupied by the secret smudge in the back of your soul to say much, and wander around, smiling to yourself and others. It gets to be kind of lonely, but at the same time off-putting, counterproductive, as you realize once again that the longest way is the most efficient way, the one that looped among islands, and you always seemed to be traveling in a circle. And now that the end is near, the segments of the trip swing open like an orange. There is light in there, and mystery, and food. Come see it. Come not for me, but it. But if I am still there, grant that we may see each other.
Well, I hope you enjoyed learning a little bit more about the poetry of Wallace Stevens. Hopefully there will be more conversations coming soon. And in the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, and remember that you too have what it takes to be a great writer. Mm -hmm.